If you hear my voice right now, you are listening to Wolf in Tune, and this is Richard Wolfie Wolf. My guest today, I am perfectly delighted and very excited to say, and also a little bit nervous, but I often get a little bit nervous when somebody's so powerful. My guest today is Elena Brower. Elena is a mama, teacher, artist, best-selling author, and host of the popular Practice You podcast. Elena has taught yoga and meditation since 1999. Her first book, Art of Attention has been translated into seven languages, and her second, Practice You, is a bestseller. Her third book, Being You, was released in early 2021. Elena's yoga and meditation classes are on glow.com, and her essential mentorship is beloved for bringing analog creativity to online coursework, and her spoken word work can be heard on Above and Beyond's Flow State albums. Welcome to the Wolf and Tune podcast, Elena. Thank you so much for having me. I just was talking about the Flow State albums. Mm. Can we get into a Flow State together? Let's see. <laughs> you never know. What's the first thing we have to do to get into a Flow State? <laughs> the first thing that I do is just breathe. That's the best. That makes total sense. You breathe and you focus on your breathing with your attention. Okay, so that's a good start. So, you know, Elena, this, uh, and my listeners know, both of them, that this podcast is devoted to exploring the special relationship between music, mindfulness, and meditation hmm. and its effects on people in the music industry, their mental health. And you are not a musician per se. However, you are a bona fide artist. In fact, I think you're an artistic renaissance woman because you're a visual artist. You're a spoken word artist. You're a multimedia artist. And uh, you're also musical, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Mm. And of course, I have to say that you're a beloved meditation teacher. I think you started out teaching yoga. Is that right? I started out teaching yoga in the late 90s, got trained to teach yoga. It was kind of on a lark. I didn't expect for it to be, you know, my life. Um, but to back up a little bit, I was raised by a very um, committed musician. My dad is a pianist, and he raised me on rock and roll and a little bit of disco in the 70s. I have hearing loss from the um, many, many hours I spent with the cans on my young head. And I love it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. <laughs> you love the hair loss or the cans on your head? I love it all. I'll take it all. It was all worth it. So somebody brought you my book because you're musical. Is that right? Correct. Um, one of my dear colleagues, a guy by the name of Corey Hunter, who owns a music studio, recording studio in California, sent me your book. And then how long after that, you got in touch, which was funny and fun. He and I worked together on that uh, essential mentorship. And I really respect him. So I, you know, checked out the book and and then later you got in touch with me. 
Yeah, because uh, I, I got some message on Instagram. Somebody was thanking you for recommending it. Mm. So I had to see, hey. There we go. What a miracle. Somebody recommended my book. I got to find out who this is. <laughs> so back to your yoga and meditation. I'm assuming that you got into meditation from yoga, right? Pranayama would have been something you practiced. Well, my initial teacher training was with Cindy Lee, who founded Om Yoga back in the late 90s. Her primary practice and focus is Tibetan Buddhism. She took and started teaching vinyasa yoga from that perspective. So the whole, you know, the very earliest teachings and understandings that I had about yoga were infused with meditation from that, you know, lineage, even though we were doing the two things sort of separately, but they were always incorporated into the same class. So from a very early time, each class would have the asana, the meditation, some breath work, and shavasana. There was always meditation, though. What kind of Buddhist meditation was introduced then? She, like I said, was a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, so that was her focus. So Zogchen? I would imagine. So the Tibetan meditation I'm familiar with, Zogchen, you focus on awareness itself. Mm -hmm. It's awareness of awareness, mm -hmm. non-dualistic. Is that, mm -hmm. oh, wow. And that was incorporated into yoga? Well, at the end of every yoga class that I teach still to this day, even if it's a half an hour, there's a minute of meditation. If it's more time, there's 10 minutes or 20 minutes of meditation. So I was trained early to make sure that that was a part of it because otherwise the vinyasa is for naught. Um, for those of us that don't understand Sanskrit, what does vinyasa mean? The movement, the practice of the postures. In Cindy's case, my first teacher's case, the vinyasa was how she taught, which is a flow. It brings the breath to the movement. So it's a, you know, there are elements during a class, a vinyasa class, that are pretty brisk and steady, flowing. The sort of overarching umbrella of what I teach would be considered hatha yoga. And that includes, you know, many different traditions and names that your listeners probably heard. But I teach less flow now, unless it's a specifically detailed flow class. I like teaching really good alignment, finding your way into your body, finding a way to observe the awareness of your body, and then always end with some element of sitting meditation. So the art of attention... Can you talk a little bit about that? I know you wrote a whole book about it, but um, just curious if you would want to give us some pointers about what's important about the art of attention, maybe one of the techniques. Well, it's not really a technique per se. This is something that I observed going back almost 20 years, that attention is our sort of most important currency, really. And... I started using that as a moniker and a sort of umbrella for my work back then, but there wasn't, I've never developed my own like method or, you know, curriculum per se. Mm -hmm. The Art of Attention became the title of the book that I created, co-created with Erica Jago back in 2011, 12. Mm -hmm. 
to take five different glow practices, glow.com, if you're listening, it's a beautiful online yoga forum. We took five of those practices. We set each of them in a different setting and basically treated it like an editorial sort of a magazine. And it became a sequence of practices that were all geared in some way toward making art of your attention, your most valuable currency. Sweet. And ever since then, I've created a series of um, meditation courses on virtual meditation courses online under that name, Art of Attention. Many thousands of people have gone through that course. And, you know, it's one of those things where you, I decided at that moment that I wanted to do exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't want to follow any rules or do what other people had done. And I created an, a virtual meditation course that had it was literally the first of its kind that had PDFs that went along with it, really elaborate, beautiful, artful, printable, downloadable pieces to go with the practices. And people love it. And it's still it's still going today. Nice. Yeah. And when you mentioned ahead of your time, you're still ahead of your time because um, I don't understand everything about NFTs. Mm. But you're doing NFTs and uh, involved with the blockchain. What's what's that? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I can't help it because you said ahead of your time. You're still ahead of your time. Well, I don't feel that that's so much ahead of my time. Like, it's ahead I, of I my think, time. Well, here's the deal. If you know how when you when you go to a bank and you have a um, you have a transaction, mm -hmm. okay, and ostensibly that transaction is on their sort of log and ostensibly anyone who wanted to could change that, right? They could go in and say, oh no, you deposited 200 instead of 300. Mm -hmm. When you think about the blockchain, it's sort of like a place where nothing can be falsified because too many people are watching. Mm. It's sort of a database and it's not controlled by one entity. It's not rewritten easily. It's sort of a ledger. It's like a permanent database, that public database that we can use to record various transactions of all kinds, from, you know, art to title records. You know, someday the world will run on the blockchain. And so all the property records that are kept in some dusty file in City Hall somewhere will be on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. When you think about, uh, I don't know, Facebook, it's mostly a database, you know, they have grown in such a major way because so many people are using that database, right? And the internet rewards people who, you know, use the, the platforms that are provided, right? Google began as a database. And the good news about the blockchain is it, it can lead to more open databases, more open networks, market-focused networks, hopefully. It can mean really positive change. It can mean the use of decentralization for good, you know. And with regards to it, it's still early days. You know, this is still an early time. And 
people are rewarded for jumping in to support early on. Mm-hmm. And that's always true. Nobody owns these communities. And, you know, in my experience, especially with NFTs, for example, there are artists who formerly had to struggle to make money and to get their art seen. And now, because of the nature of the community around NFTs, these non-fungible tokens, which are really just, you know, a piece of art that lives on the blockchain, they have generated large-scale acceptance and community around them. So, for example, there are a few projects with which I'm involved, and my involvement really is just supporting the community, buying a piece of the art, um, being on their Discord channel, and being supportive of the other community members. It's just that. It's, you know, and particularly during the pandemic, it was a way for many of us to stay in contact and feel a part of something, even though we could not leave our homes. Interesting. So on that note of your creativity, as I mentioned before, you're so versatile and varied in in the different artistic pursuits. What is the relationship that you experience between, if there is a relationship that you experience between creativity and meditation? Well, what I've found is that the more consistently I meditate, now I have a morning practice and it's involatile. I'm here every day. I, I meditate where I record my podcasts, actually, slightly over to the side. Very quiet space in my closet. And when I meditate consistently, which I have been doing for the last two years, Creativity is abundant because I'm sitting every day. I'm sort of taking this moment, 20, 30 minutes to, at first, it's kind of a review. Like if you sit down and you think, oh, I'm supposed to have a blank mind from moment one, you know? No. I have to run through all the various things that are going on in my head and around me, sort of categorize them all. This is just my own personal um, you know, process, right. categorize them all and file them all and, you know, figure out what the priorities are. And then I can sort of empty it out. I do that using the breathing. I do that by not trying to deny my thoughts. I do that by watching the thoughts and seeing them come and go. They're so quick sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then going to the place underneath them all underneath all of those thoughts and all that activity, that intellectual activity, where the sort of grounding force resides. It's not like a physical thing. It's sort of a, there's just always a presence. And I try and rest my attention there to the best of my capacity. And when I'm in that space of resting my attention there, all sorts of really cool creative ideas happen. That visions come to me for paintings, uh, poems, lines, phrases for future books come to me. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And the meditation itself leaves me feeling quite rested and relaxed by the end of it. So there's a huge relationship between meditation and creativity, and one which I value highly. And you, when you see these visions or uh, whatever creative artwork comes across your field of awareness, 
you do you remember it or do you feel oh i got to write this down because i mean i mean i know in my case when i get ideas even if they're musical ideas or lyrical or whatever it might be i have this impulse i want to write it down because i know i'm not going to remember half of them hmm. and and then i just say no i'm i'm here to meditate i'm not going to write it down do you remember this stuff yeah <laughs> i do i don't have i don't have a lot of like I don't have a lot of um, complexity in my life at the moment. I'd like to keep it that way. And so if I think of something, you know, something crosses my field of awareness in meditation and it's meant to stay and be explored, I'll have no trouble remembering it afterwards. Oh, that's a gift. Yeah. So do you notice also that when you're creating, I mean, David Lynch emphasized that for him, creativity was enhanced by meditation because it lessened the impact of judgmental negativity. Mm-hmm. You know, he he would be aware that if he's being critical of himself, overcritical or over negative, just to let the creativity happen, mm. and then afterwards maybe take a look at it and then you know craft it, but not to be too negative. Do you find that also that you have less judgmental negativity? You know, I've found as I've gotten older and with this practice of meditation being so prioritized that negativity really flashes in front of me as though somebody is taking a highlighter pen over it and I don't even have a moment to allow it to reveal itself or to become a fully formed thought. It has no place with me. Wow. So even if if it's about myself, especially like that, I'm just it's just not allowed. It just doesn't happen. It's like a shred, a little a little crumb of a thought that comes, and I can see it, and I can just smile and no, 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 not for me. If I have a negative thought about somebody else, and I've had my fair share of options <laughs> in the recent, let's say, months. Mm-hmm. There were just a handful of folks who were really coming after me in such a weird, insidious way. And I can't even have negative thoughts about them. All I can see is the pained child. And any negativity just dissipates. I see pigtails. I see a little boy in short pants that are too short. I see I see pain. You know, if somebody's going to go to the trouble of trying to cause pain and harm to somebody else... That's all I can see in them. So it just passes quickly. There's no time for that. Life is really short. We have no idea how long we'll be here, especially now. You know, we have uh, a real shit show happening on the world stage in so many ways, ways I won't even deign to talk about here. Yeah. And we could all very well be calling it the end tomorrow. Yeah. So... There's no time. And yes, to answer your question finally, yes, the practice of meditation really does help to mitigate surges of negativity about myself or anyone else or about my creativity or anyone else's creativity because there's no time for that. Everyone is out there doing their best, even the people who are jerks to me or to anybody else trying to take someone else down. They're just doing their best. That's all they know how to do. They probably had a pretty great example from their parents as to how to get through the world by 
just fucking with other people, you know? So I can't even blame them. Mm. It's the first thing that happens when somebody is awful in my space to me or to somebody else. I instantly reach for my hand. I put it on my heart. I provide myself with empathy. And then the first thing that happens, and it's completely natural now, is I can see in my mind this person. It's not something I'm trying to do. It just the vision comes. I see this person as a child who's being in some way really negatively impacted by somebody near them, which is the only explanation for that kind of behavior as an adult. That's fantastic. That's like a great technique. I'm going to try that. The first thing, the default mechanism, and this is something I've learned from my teacher, Judith Lassiter. The default mechanism has to be empathy for yourself first. How human of me for seeing this person in some sort of negative way. And then instantly it transforms because you're a human. That means so is that person. And as awful as they're acting or the things that they're saying, as untrue, as false as it might be, that person was once a kid who was treated terribly. And if you can see that and have empathy for that kid, you're getting somewhere. Wow. That's, that's good stuff. I mean, meditation does instill compassion, I think, if you do long enough. Um, yeah. Because you see that we're all manifestations of one energy. Mm. So there's self and other, that kind of duality disappears um, a lot. Not totally, but a lot. But um, actually, one of my favorite podcasts that you did, and I've listened to it at least two times, is your interview with Joan Halifax. Another teacher of mine. Very important to me. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking about compassion and the shit show of the world mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. Um, she's a spokesperson and a leader in the Peacemakers Order, right? It's a, it's the Order a, of the Zen Peacemakers. It was founded by her teacher, Bernie, Roshi Bernie Glassman. It was influenced by Thich Nhat Hanh, too, right? Correct. Thich Nhat Hanh, right. who we all love and will love forever. Yeah who brought this idea of engaged Buddhism mm -hmm. uh, and talk about the shit show of the world right now. This is something I get asked by students, how can you find happiness or how can you be content because meditation brings you a degree of joy and contentment when there's so much suffering in the world? So I spent the whole of 2021 in a training on social engagement, socially engaged Buddhism. Yeah. And the concept is that you you have these sort of three tenets of the Zen peacemakers, you know, not knowing, you have no idea what's happening. You're committed to being okay with not knowing, to being very curious. Um, you're bearing witness to a great deal of pain and suffering, for sure, anyone you ask at this moment in time, no matter how privileged they are, is bearing witness. And you take action. That's the third tenet. And the most important, mm -hmm. you take compassionate action. 
The whole year I spent just listening to incredible luminaries speak on this matter, from Joanna Macy to John Paul Lederach and Reggie Hubbard and just so many great people. Gosh, and Rhonda McGee. And what I learned is that in every single day, there is something, some action that I can be taking toward the betterment of our world. It doesn't have to be a million dollars. It doesn't have to be 24 hours of my time, but I can stay socially engaged in making a difference every single day. And so it changed a lot of how I function. It shifted a lot of my priorities in terms of my professional life. And now I am much more active uh, with regards to the causes in which I believe uh, than I ever was. And I'm no less productive, quote unquote, in my work. In fact, I feel more productive with less effort. And the, the work lives on. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh was um, very committed to teaching people that if you're a socially engaged Buddhist, you're not just sitting on your cushion all day. You are out there. You are marching. You are, you know, helping to create legislation. You are on phone banks. You're doing your best to create a better world in whatever way you know how. Yeah, and, and when you mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh and marching, I just got this vision of uh, he did come to the United States to march for peace uh, the time of the Vietnam War. He was uh, incidentally uh, nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize mm -hmm. by Martin Luther mm -hmm. King, right? Mm -hmm. And he was a force for peace in the world, nonviolence, and nonviolent change. And uh, he did march, and they said that when he was marching, people were amazed because he was walking mindfully very slowly and doing walking meditation at the same time. So that's such a, a great metaphor for there's no contradiction between becoming equanimous, tranquil, mm -hmm. and, and mindful and concentrated in other aspects of contemplative practice at the same time that you're making a difference in the world. Yep. Yep. Joan, Roshi Joan talks about that a lot. She had marched with him on more than one occasion and spent many, many years of her life studying with him. And, you know, much of her great work was moved in the direction that it went by his very being. Yeah, that's right. One of the most memorable experiences that I've ever had was at Deer Park Monastery, his monastery wow. in, near San Diego. Yeah. And, um, we did walking meditation. Mm -hmm. Just like you say, his presence, yes. and just being able to walk, you know, behind him yes. with other students. Yes. It's very magnetic and profound. Yes. It's one of those things that I wish I'd gotten to do. So interesting. I just found out after his death that my sitter, who was really like a sister to me back in New York, took my son to meet him. What? Yep. He was at ABC, and I was there, but I was working in some other capacity at this event. And my sitter took him to meet Thich Nhat Hanh. Wow. I know. Wow. It's so awesome. So when he passed, my son was really touched, actually, by his passing. And it was then that my son noticed I had uh, 
back when I moved from New York out here, um, I treated myself to one of his original works from that day at ABC when he was hand painting the um, Ensos with the mantras inside. Mm -hmm. And I bought Open Mind, Open Heart, which had been situated on the wall where I was teaching very near to where I was teaching for many years, so at least three, four years. And um, I now have it in my bedroom and it's one of my most prized pieces. Yeah. I, I have one like that too. Mm -hmm. It's in the next room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and you mentioned, and I interrupted you, um, okay. uh, but you had mentioned Bernie Glassman. Mm -hmm. Did, Bernie Glassman, who was the founder of the Peacemakers Order, right? Yes. And yes. Did you ever meet him? No, he was Roshi Jones' teacher, so I have the great privilege of hearing her talk about him from time to time. And when I look at his picture, you know, as a as a woman of the Jewish faith, and I see him, mm -hmm. there's some sort of kinship in his face with me, with my family. I, I don't know how to explain it, but it's there's a closeness there that I feel. I'm sure he was Eastern European. And, you know, I'm sure if we were able to, by some miracle, trace the lines back, I'm sure there's some connection there because I feel a very strong move in my body toward him whenever I see an image of him. So I keep I keep a couple close of him and Roshi Joan. Yeah, I get that. I totally get yeah. that. He's a Jewish guy from Brooklyn. Totally. Yeah. As a matter of fact, so, you know, I just was talking to uh, Krishna Das last week. Totally from... the same deal. <laughs> exactly the same. That's my buddy right there. <laughs> and the two of them together, he showed me a picture oh, of the two of them. I bet. <laughs> I bet. So, so the thing, one of the things I love about Bernie Glassman is the reason we brought him mm -hmm. up. It's because he carried around in his pocket a clown nose and he had this total Zen humor about life that there's always an amusing aspect and it always could bring out the humor in a situation. Mm. And uh, he, he said that, you know, uh, his advice as a Zen master was to wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is go look at yourself in the mirror and laugh. Yes. Ah, oh, that's gorge. That's exactly what we have to do right now. <laughs> this is this is the real test right now. This is going to be, you know, uh, there's a beautiful movie, really old Czech film. I forget what it's called. The shop, the, something with the word shop in it. Unbelievable film about the moment the Germans came in to that uh, region, that neighborhood, and what happened, what ensued. Oh, I have to figure out what the name of the film is. Anyway, it's so moving. But I think we're, I have a funny feeling that we need to wake up. We need to be very awake right now because this is happening. This is real right now. It's very, very, very scary. You know, and I hear this in your voice a softness and a firmness at the same time. Mm. And I've heard you talk about a feminine approach to spiritual discipline. Can you talk about that a little bit? I'm only just 
really starting to scratch the surface at the age of 51. And I don't really feel qualified to talk about it. But what I can say is this. I've spent the last 20 years trying to sort of downshift from this very heightened state of awareness and knowing and needing to learn more and more and more and take it all in and then regurgitate it and give it all out, you know. And what I'm learning now in the last few years is that the more feminine aspect and it doesn't necessarily mean female, don't like overthink what I'm saying, but the more feminine sort of softer state of mind, state of being, I think is the only way forward. Roshi Joan references grandmother's heart, Robaishin in Japanese. It's this state of like, you know, I had, I happen to have been blessed with two grandmothers, one of whom was especially warm and loving with me. The other one was too, but she had her own sort of limitations from her own childhood. Um, but the one, my mother's mother, she was so ridiculous. She loved me so much. And when Roshi Joan talks about grandmother's heart, I just get, you know, it brings a tear into my throat and I feel the love that she felt for me, the spaciousness, the time that she had for me, the concern that she had for me. That's the kind of cultivation that is needed right now on a more grand, vast scale, writ large, if we are to get past this, this moment in time. Otherwise, it's just over. You know, it's going to be a nuclear war and who knows if any of us will come out alive. But to spend the time now cultivating this sort of softer approach, this more grandmother's heart, more spacious, more um, a learning state rather than a doing state, and even more than learning, just receiving. I think that's the way forward. You threw in a uh, a big red flag there about the end of the world. <laughs> Maybe it does what T.S. Eliot says. Maybe it doesn't go out with a bang, but with a whimper. You don't know. Meaning... Yeah. We don't know, but not nuclear war, but we have a climate uh, problem, and that we know. For sure. Right? That's a fact that we know of that can be reversed. Yes. In Being You, which is your latest book, you said, emotions I choose to reduce negativity, and these I choose to amplify mm. positivity. Right. And I want the listeners to know that there's a drawing that goes with this. But could you explain a little bit about that? It comes back to that feminine approach, I think. You know, we have these moments in time where we can separate ourselves from the experience of, I am mad, I am frustrated, I am, blah, blah, blah. And we can just see, you know, well, that's passing through us right now. So I'm going to choose to amplify that or not. It's just that simple. Yeah, it it takes a great deal of discipline and practice for sure to be able, right? For sure, it's something you ha you really have to work on this like every day. Uh, you have to have some kind of a practice, whether mindfulness, meditation, whatever, because it takes a lot of conditioning to be able to have this distance, the space between the stimulus and the response. Mm -hmm. And as one thing I remember hearing you say. 
which I totally relate to, is in one of your, um, it's kind of a cross between a spoken word and a guided meditation. And you say, okay, now sit for another five minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, practice, sit down, practice, sit for another five minutes because mm -hmm. you'll get more benefit. Yeah. What I love about um, taking in the teachings with Upaya Zen Center, which is where I study now most of my time with Roshi Joan and her colleagues, there's always this kind of combination, you know, listen to a little bit of the Dharma, sit, sit first, listen to the Dharma, sit again, you know. She's mm -hmm. very conscientious about giving a little space and time. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be very valuable. Do you do walking meditation in between the sitting as well? Sometimes, yeah. When Sometimes when I'm taking like long weekends, I just took the, they had a really incredible haiku weekend with um, Natalie Goldberg and Kwame Alexander and uh, Clark, I'm forgetting his last name right now, and Kaz Tanahashi, these incredible haiku poets. And in between the sessions, there would be breaks. So on the second day, on Sunday, I went and I did a walking meditation outside in the, in the forest and it was just beyond. You know, you've mm -hmm. got all these beautiful, well-chosen um, words, the haiku, you know, and they're full of humor and they're also full of sanctity. And there you are, walking meditation, between mm -hmm. classes and it's just it just doesn't get any better you know i felt so full well i'm gonna get a little geeky on you sure. so when you're meditating at the zen center what is it zazen that you're doing zazen or? yeah so simple zazen yeah. is to focus on the breath that's the concentration technique right complete the way the way that roshi joan teaches it is quite special and her teachers you know and her um, colleagues, it's, yes, starting with the breath. And I always like to start by infusing it with a little bit of samavritti, where you keep your inhalation and your exhalation even when I teach mm -hmm. and when I practice. And then you start to see, oh, yeah, okay, let me get my spine a little taller. Let me make sure my little you know, cosmic mudra is still happening and my thumbs aren't just blasting into one another, but they're softly touching, you know, checking in the physical form. And then you start, at least then I start to get a sense for all those thoughts that are racing through. And that's sort of, you know, it's this is happening within the first few minutes. All the thoughts are racing through. Oh my God, I got to do this. I got to do that. And then what is beneath that? What is prior to that? And like I said earlier in our chat, that's where I kind of try and rest my attention on that. What is that force? What is that presence within me, you know? And when Roshi Joan teaches about it, she always like sort of points to that, which is always present if she's teaching how to meditate like explicitly. And once that's sort of been said or been absorbed, received, let's say, zazen is really just about continuously returning to that understanding, to that, to that process of up oh, thoughts. Oh, what's beneath them? Ah, oh, 
Can I just put my attention there again? Yeah, and uh, that's interesting in that it starts with an anchor on your attention of the breath. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that if when you're tuning into one direction, you're tuning out everything else. That's the hope. Like you say, thoughts will come, things will come, ideas will come. But the idea is to tune out everything else, tune into one direction. Then all of a sudden, you realize that there's just awareness. And there's this energy field of awareness that you are. Hmm. And it's very powerful. But you get to it through concentration. It's like in Zen, uh, the way way we learned it was no uh, mindfulness in terms of, oh, watch your thoughts or see your thoughts and that kind of thing. It's just hmm. you got to come back to focusing on the breath. Yeah. So, Elena, this has been... A sincere sensation. <laughs> Is there anything that you would like to add or mention that you haven't? Well, it's sort of timely, but I'll mention it anyway, because I do think we'll end up doing it again. Um, Judith Lassiter and I are going to be, I'm hosting her. She's really the teacher. She's going to be offering a eight week, a four week course, eight sessions on nonviolent communication. It's been the single most sort of beneficial understanding that I've gained in the last several months. And I'm going to host her as she teaches it. And it should be really spectacular. It happens in June of 2022, Thursdays and Fridays, two hours each day, which seems like a whole lot, but really uh, you'll have all the recordings and it's going to be a true game changer for the ways in which you communicate in your life. And while you know, that's not my main thrust in my life necessarily, but it has been such a huge sea change in the way that I work in my world and the way that I communicate in my family that I want to make sure that they share it. So there it is. Wow. That sounds great. Yeah. And where do you find, where do people find that? If you go to elenabrower.com. Okay. At the top, you'll see um, calendar. It's called Difficult Conversations is the name of the course. And you'll see all the all the details there in the calendar. Okay. And then you can also find the Practice You podcast there, right? I'll link to it, right? For sure. Yeah. There's a podcast page right there. Elena Brower, it has been, hmm. as I said before, incandescent and invigorating hmm. chatting with you. Excuse me, I have to clear my throat. <clears> throat> it's pretty good. This is the first time I've cleared my throat. Yes. All right, Elena, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast and for infusing us with such beautiful stuff, beautiful gems. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. I really appreciate your work as well, and thank you for your beautiful book. Thank you, and I can't wait to talk to you again. For sure. Okay, kids, here's my favorite part. Uh, this is where I get down on my hands and knees and beg everybody to please... If you like this podcast, and may I add, if you're listening still to my voice and this podcast, that means there's something there that attracted your fascination long enough for you to hang around. So please share that appreciation with others. Give us a review. Give us a ratings, please, or a rating, whatever you prefer. And uh, we will very much appreciate that. Make sure we'll send you 
a huge bouquet of flowers as soon as we read your spectacular review. So uh, on that note, I would like to thank people that helped with this podcast, the incredible James Bianco, the wonderful Taylor Matthews, and the absolutely marvelous, the Hannah Bowers. And on that note, I would like to just remind you to please stay up in a higher octave and let's you and I stay in tune.